been staring at the edge of the water long as I can remember, never really knowing why. I wish I could be the perfect daughter, but I come back to the water no matter how hard I try. Every turn I take, every trail I track, every path I make, every road leads back to the place I know where I cannot go, where I long to be. See the line where the sky meets the sea, it calls me, and no one knows how far it goes. If the wind in my sand... You are listening to the Philip K. Dick Book Club part of the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I am Evan Lampy. Today we're going to be looking at Mr. Spaceship. Really a wonderful tale. A really important story, actually, in Philip K. Dick's views of human potential on the frontier. It was originally published in 1953 in the journal Imagination, the literary journal Imagination. Um, and it appears for our convenience in the first volume of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick. Um, so often with these, you know, because I had a blog where I read all the Philip K. Dick stories and, and I gave plot summaries there. So instead of rewriting these plot summaries, I'll just I'll just state what I wrote in the Philip K. Dick review um, blog. Uh, this is so this is Mr. Spaceship. Um, so Kramer, a technocrat in Terra's military-industrial infrastructure, is debating a problem with his colleague Gross. The automated ships of the Terra fleet are run on a device called the Johnson Control. This is almost always defeated by the organic technology of the Proxima Centauri minefield. So there's this war going on between Proxima Centauri and Earth. As and they, they can't get a military advantage. As life forms, the mines can easily outmaneuver the Johnson control, which is automated. But human pilots cannot survive the voyage to, you know, to Proxima Centauri to, to fight. So th there's already an interesting aspect with this where the, you know, you have automated warfare. A uh, really interesting science fiction concept that, that Dick takes advantage of. He's really interested in automation. And this is, this is not the most famous story of his on automation, but he has a lot of stories about automation. Um, and it's, this is one of the things that make Dick so relevant to our, our life is the, you know, the, the growing threat or the growing concern about auto, is automation and what that means for work in the future. So anyways, uh, human pilots, you know, can't survive the journey, so warfare is automated. The solution, according to Kramer, is to use a human brain as the control center of the ship. But the brain will need to be donated. It, someone will have to be sacrificed. It's going to have to be basically, it's kind of like the RoboCop thing where, you know, the brain will be, the, you need the organic parts for the technology to work, but you're not going to have any memory. It's, you need someone essentially dead to, to do that. Um, so the organic material of the brain will be used. The consciousness would end. That's the idea. So it's really much like the, the RoboCop storyline. Kramer meets his ex-wife, Dolores uh, with Gross and they discuss the details of the plan. So here we get some exposition through this kind of dinner table conversation. Dolores suggests their old professor, Michael Thomas, who's very old and is at the end of his life, but he still has a very sharp mind. Gross and Kramer go to meet 
Professor Thomas, who seemed interested in the idea and expresses a willingness to help with the war effort, but he demands to see the details of the plan. Sometime later, Kramer is talking with his, with his second-in-command, Dale Winter, about the forthcoming brain transplant onto the ship. Gross unveils the ship to the public, explaining how the use of the human brain will make the ship superior to ships powered by the Johnston Control. Kramer is surprised to learn that some changes were made to the wiring of the ship. Uh, the test flight commences shortly. When the ship accelerates too fast, the pilot for the test launch realizes that the brain of Professor Thomas has taken over the ship. Thomas begins talking to Kramer on intimate terms, showing that the theory behind the ship was faulty. Consciousness was not lost when the brain was separated from the body. In fact, it lived on. And with the help of other ships, the crew escapes. The debriefing on the moon concludes that the experiment was a failure and that Professor Thomas still entirely conscious, purposefully absconded with the ship, probably in an attempt to extend his own life. Kramer is questioned about his knowledge uh, of Professor Thomas and his personal philosophy and goals. Kramer does not remember much about him personally, but Dolores recalls that he used to like goats. Kramer uh, goes that night impressed with Thomas's audacity, but fearful that this might represent the moment that humanity loses control over technology. And this works on a couple levels. So on the one level, we have apparently the technology to prolong life indefinitely through technological means, the, the old uploading yourself to a computer kind of thing or becoming a cyborg. Um, at the beginning part of the story, this isn't a threat because the idea is, yeah, we can integrate you know, humanity with technology, but that will kill consciousness. But when it's proven that's not the case, suddenly humanity can live forever. It's not an idea that's really developed in this story, but it's, it's hinted at here. Uh, but also, we have now technology that can think for itself and can act in its own will. That's now completely dependent on the wills of the human programmers. So that's a bit uh, frightening for us, for the reader. Kramer awakens to news that his wife has been seriously injured. But with no scheduled ships departing for Terra, Kramer finds a passing cruiser, which he boards as quickly as he can. Immediately, he learns that the ship is, is the one controlled by Professor Thomas. Thomas explains that he stole the ship in hopes of giving humanity another chance to avoid war. He thinks war is a learned characteristic and that a new human society can be formed that will not have a tendency to commit violence. Thomas hopes to take on the role of a god, directing and cultivating a new human civilization. Thomas then explains that he will use the same ruse to pick up Dolores. Kramer and Dolores will be the new Adam and Eve. So that's the story. That's Mr. Spaceship. Um, now, there's two or three main things here. Maybe maybe three I, I want to talk about here. Uh, the first is that we have this relationship between human nature and violence. This is touched upon in other stories. We've already seen it in The Defenders. And the idea that humanity needs some kind of cultivation, almost a, a, a period of growing up before it can be free enough, independent enough, enlightened enough, whatever, to get over war, right? In the Defenders, it's these people are kept by the robots below ground, deluded, you know, con convinced that the war is still going on until such point that they can come to the surface to a revitalized Earth and accept that war is not 
the, the solution. So it's an anti-war tale on, on that level, right? Thomas is kind of like the Lettys in The Defenders, right? There's a belief here that humanity is not doomed to warfare as an end, you know, as an end in itself. But there are slight differences here. The Lettys believe that war is an evolutionary stage in human cultures, human evolution almost, that they'll have to evolve out of. Thomas thinks in a more biblical way that war, violence, you know, infliction of pain is something taught or it's a product of a fallen society. It's, it's a product of, of a fallen society. So we actually have the fall hinted at and the story ending with Adam and Eve or kind of a new Adam and Eve, a new attempt at purity. So here in this story, war is simply a cultural product of, of a, fallen, a fallen society, right? And I like how Dick kind of takes on the trope that was common in kind of space operas of, of, of this generation of kind of these big intergalactic or big planetary empires at war with some distant um, power. And that that's kind of the, the that he, he presents it as really horrific here and something that we want to get beyond. Not good. There's nothing good about this. And to a degree, it's certainly also a metaphor for the Cold War, as, as many of the stories in this part in Dick's career must must be. You know, it's the 1950s, early 1950s. Um, now, another thematic point in the story is a preference for human control technology over pure automation. It's literally presented that way here, right? Automation. Uh, is a necessary evil at the beginning of the story because human pilots can't go. So they invent some element of human control through like the cybernetic, the, the, the organic elements of the ship, right? Bringing in a human mind to the ship, this will prevent, or this will keep kind of some human control in it, right? Yeah. At first, it's just the practical matter that the human mind works faster than the, than the, than the, than the ship. Than the pure than the Johnson control, the pure mechanical uh, technology. Okay, um, but in the end, we get in fact a human mind actually is controlling the ship, and that is the best possible outcome. Right here, Terrence had been engaged in a long war with Proxima Centauri, and the use of automated ships is simply ineffective in a military sense. The enemies have organic technology, which gives them an advantage over the Terrans. The solution dreamed up by the Terran technocrats is to replace the central computer of the ship with a human brain, right? Here's a quote from the Pats. Where is it? The ship, here it is, sorry, I was looking for the quote here. The ship had, in a brief second, stolen their power away from them and left them defenseless, practically at its mercy. It was not right, and it made him uneasy. All of his life he had controlled machines, bent nature and the forces of nature to man's and man's needs. Now Thomas responds as a true transhumanist, almost, right? Seeing that the future is in the integration of, of man and machine, right? Not just for permanency. But, uh, you know, he almost becomes godlike at the end, right? O overseeing the new Adam and Eve. Um, he believes that, Thomas believes that technological improvements are capable of cultivating greater happiness for humanity. 
So what else is here? Um, oh, finally, just space, exploration, the frontier, right? Uh, this is a common trope in Dick's writing, this a static, uh, stagnant earth and kind of in some kind of trap, whether it's a system, it's a bureaucracy, it could be a, you know, an ongoing perpetual war in this case, the power of a, of a small elite, whatever it is, you're giving a, a kind of a static nature on earth. And the question is, how do we escape stagnation? How do we escape the trap of being fixed in one place? For Dick, at least to some degree, and I, I'll, I think this is a big part of his work. I think it's one of the neglected things by people who have commented on his, on his scholarship or, or the scholars who have commented on him. They've often neglected this. And that is Dick is a believer in the frontier. He believes that humanity has to venture out to a new frontier if it's going to escape that. There's, there's something almost Turner-esque in this. I'm thinking here of Frederick Jackson Turner, the American historian who talked about American democracy being the product of a constant revitalization, revitalization process due to the frontier experience. By moving west, Americans rebuilt democracy every generation. Right? And, you know, there's no frontier anymore. It's, you know, Dick is a California writer. He's living at the edge of the frontier. And the, to dream of a new frontier, it's not just Star Trek here. It's, you know, here Dick is predating Star Trek by a good decade, talking about the necessity of venturing out, you know, into the future. And, in, and that has to be in space. That has to be in new places. And through that, humanity can remake their, you know, a new spirit. Right. In this case, it's the avoiding the, the spirit of war and replacing it with the spirit of, of love and equality and peace. Let's see if I can find where this is talked about directly. It's, if it's such a deeply ingrained habit, war, going back thousands of years, how are you going to get your colonists to make the break, leave Terra and Terran customs? How about this generation, the first one, the people who found this colony? I think you're right that the old gener next generation will be free of all this if there were a, an old man above to teach him something else. Kramer looked at the wall speaker. How are you going to get this people to leave Terra and come with you if by your own theory this generation can't be saved? It will all it has, it will also start with the next generation. The wall speaker was silent. Then it made a sound, a faint dry chuckle. I'm surprised at you, Philip. Settlers can be found. We won't need many, just a few. The speaker chuckled again. I'll acquaint you with my solution. And then he introduces them to his wife. So basically he says, you are going to be the next generation. You know this. You have this awareness. This, you have this tendency to peace. So you're going to have to start. So the point is, it has to start with us. This rebirth has to start with us. And, you know, whether it's in a new place or on Earth, we are going to have to be the ones who face what's wrong in our world and wrong in our society. And we can't keep kicking the can to then some kind of future next generation to save us. And I think that's a powerful message for us, whether it's climate change or inequality or political corruption or war, it is going to have to be changed for, with us. We cannot, you know, you know, wait for the millennials to save us. So I think that's a very important um, message here. So uh, a great, wonderful story. Um, you know, a lot of these early Dick stories get kind of passed over and not taken seriously. Um, yeah, and he was writing for pulpy magazines and you know they're not things that are going to be in the norton anthology of american literature anytime soon 
but they're really great on ideas and they have important things to to teach us and um, um, with that I think I'll I think I can close the door on on mr. spaceship I'll uh, if you like this, please uh, subscribe, rate, share. You can email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your feelings about this story, what you got out of it. Um, but I'll see you next time. Uh, if you like this, listen to my 100 Pages cast, which is on the same channel. You can subscribe to both at the same time and get my commentary on other uh, American writers besides Philip K. Dick. So thanks for listening, and um, I will see you next time. Just no telling how far I'll go I know everybody on this island Seems so happy on this island Everything is by design I know everybody on this island Has a role on this island So maybe I can roll